might uh, grow, might flourish and bear fruit for your glory. Help me as I'm struggling a bit with some issues with my knee. Help me to be focused and to be clear. And uh, let us end our time in this room today giving glory to you. And as we go to the other side and we share in a meal that you've provided, we'll give you glory there as well. We ask all of this in the name of the one mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 20. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You are indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In anything and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Joel, I'm, I'm, I'm getting a little bit of ringing going on and it's going to be distracting if you could back me off a little bit. I appreciate it. You can all hear me, right? Yes. Okay. So we come to this uh, last uh, section in Paul's uh, brief epistle to the Philippians. And if you're paying attention and you had looked at the sermon insert, you can see that uh, I, what I see in this are some, hmm, some information about gratitude about contentment, and, and about generosity. That's really kind of the, the main three things that I see in this passage that Paul is um, ending the book with. And, and it, as, as he ends this, this letter, in this section, he returns to some of the themes that he introduced in the opening prayer and thanksgiving of the, the letter. So, Keep your finger where you're at, but also go over to Philippians chapter 1. We're going to do just a little bit of comparing there. See that he brings up some of the themes that he, in fact, started with as he began this epistle. Both, both sections, the opening section of the letter and the ending section of the letter, uh, include a note of the apostle's joy uh, in his relationship with the Philippians, in his relationship with God. So in chapter 1 and verse Three said, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy, with joy. And then in chapter 10, uh, chapter 4 and verse 10, of course, it says, I rejoiced in the Lord 
greatly. And, and joy is a theme that runs throughout the epistle. I was, I was just kind of scanning through it again today, and he talks about joy there in the first few verses. In chapter 1, verse 19, he, or end of verse 18, he says, I will rejoice. In uh, chapter 2, he talks about the joy that he has and the church should have in verses 17 and 18. If I'm poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Chapter 3 and verse 1, he had said, Finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. In chapter 4 and verse 4, he said, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And those are just some of the uh, mentions of the word joy or gladness or rejoicing, whether it's a noun or it's a verb. It's something like 16 times in the epistle he refers to joy. Also, each section, the beginning and the ending, embrace the practical display of the Philippians' partnership with Paul in the work of the gospel. Chapter 1 and verse 6, he says, or in verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. He was giving thanks with joy and praying for them. Why? Because of their partnership with him in the gospel from the first day until then. And then in verse 7, he says it again. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you all are partakers, partners with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. And, and then we see it again in chapter 4 and verse 10. Uh, he's talking about their concern for him, and, and it's a reference to their uh, gift that they had sent for him and the work of the gospel. Verse 14 it was kind of you to share, to partner with me in my trouble. And in verse 18, he says it again. He says, I have received full payment and am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So he, he brings up their partnership with him. And that included their financial partnership with him in the spread of the gospel. Also, each section mentions God's faithfulness in working in and through the church family. You see it throughout the, the section in chapter 4 where he's talking about God and his work through the Philippians in providing for Paul. But in chapter 1, it was there as well in verse 6. I am sure of this that he began a good work in you will bring it to completion to the day of Jesus Christ. And then drop down to verse 9 through 11. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. So he's talking about God's continuing work in them, that he would be faithful to do all that he willed to do in and through them. And then finally, each section includes an ascription to the glory of God, kind of a mini doxology, if you will. In chapter 1 and verse 11 again, 
They are filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And then again in chapter 4 and verse 20. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So this, this final section, while it includes some of the same themes that it began in the first part of the letter, it's really kind of a, an expression. In fact, the whole letter is really an expression of Paul's gratitude for the Philippians, for their faithful generosity in ministering to his work and the needs of taking the gospel out. And he's already alluded to their kindness in chapter uh, 1 and verses 3 through 5. I have already read that. And, and he's written with great affection about the gift that Epaphroditus, who had been a member of the church in Colossae, had been sent, or uh, in Philippi, had been sent by the Philippians to bring a gift to meet Paul's need when he was in prison in Rome. He's already talked very uh, kindly about Epaphroditus and his sacrifice of service, not only in bringing the gift, but in ministering alongside Paul, even to the point of near death. And now he discusses the gift in detail. And, and from this section, what we can actually find are applications regarding uh, giving and receiving, and, uh, re- as well as the significance of contentment in what God provides. So gratitude, contentment, and generosity are kind of the three things that he brings up in these final verses. Now our discussion, as we go through this passage today and next week, we'll look at, look at it primarily from Paul's point of view. And, and, and for that reason, what we're going to do is actually focus on the contentment that he had and what God was doing for him through the lives of the Philippians. It really is all about contentment from his perspective. We'll see uh, all of this from the perspective of, you know, a person who is content will have certain things be true of them. And that's what the sermon insert is going to lay out for you as we go through it. And you'll be able to fill in the blanks. I know some of you will already be trying to do that. Get ahead of me. You're welcome to do that. And you can, you can change it if you get it wrong. <laughs> so the first thing that we see about a contented person. By the way, remember, I read this already, but Paul says in verse 12, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. In verse 11, he says that's all about being content. Being content being content. So the first thing that we see in this section is that a contented person rejoices in God's faithful provision. That's verse 10. A contented person rejoices in God's faithful provision. He says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. And you might be wondering, well, where in the world are you getting, you know, that a contented person rejoices in God's, uh, you know, faithful provision? Well, hopefully you already see that, but let me explain it to you if, if you don't see it. So 
Paul strikes once again this, this theme, right? I rejoice in the Lord greatly. Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting how many times joy is found in the scripture, and it's a lot in the Gospels, and in fact it talks about the exceeding joy that the Gospel brings to people uh, in Matthew 2.10, Matthew 28.8, Luke 2.10, 24.52. You don't need all these. I'm just showing these are a few references of where it talks about exceeding joy because of the truth of the gospel. Acts 8.8, 8, Acts 15.3. I mean, this, however, is the only place where Paul actually talks about his joy quantifying it. He says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly, greatly. Uh, this, this, by the way, is not a summons for the, the Philippians to rejoice. Hmm. He did that already in chapter 4, didn't he, in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord, he said. Rejoice always in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. So he's not summoning them. He's already done that. Here he's talking about his own feelings concerning their act of sacrifice on his behalf, how God had used them. And there, and there are a few things to take note about this verse. First, that Paul quantifies the intensity of his joy. Again, he says, I rejoice greatly. And, and this is the only place where he actually uses this word in the New Testament. In fact, it's the only time the word, the adverb greatly is used of joy in the New Testament. Only time that this adverb is actually used in the New Testament, not regarding just joy, but anything. I rejoice greatly. There are other places where it talks about exceeding joy, but here he uses this adverb found only here in the New Testament. And I think the, the, the point is this, that the uniqueness of this word being used here says depth about his gratitude to God for the financial support received by the Philippians. It great joy. Great joy. You know, he had summoned them to rejoice, and he says, my joy exceeds yours. In a sense, he says, I rejoice greatly. I hope that you can rejoice greatly, but I do. I rejoice greatly in the Lord. So that's the second thing. He says that his joy is in the Lord, not in the Philippians. His joy is in the Lord. One might expect that Paul would say he rejoiced in the Philippians' concern for him expressed in their gift. And in fact, as you read this, it's clear what he's saying to the Philippians is uh, thank you, right? Thank you for your, your kindness. Thank you for your gift. But nowhere do you actually read the word thank you. As I was doing a bunch of reading on this passage this week, I found out that part of that related to the Greek culture and that when one said thank you to another person, it put them in a position of obligation, put that person in a position of obligation back to them, and it was like a, you got to pile on, you know, thank you, thank you, no, thank you, no, thank you, no, thank you. It's like, when's it ever going to end? Do you ever feel that way when you, 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 you get a card from someone, you've done something for them, it might be a gift, might be a kind word, and they will write you a card. I wanted to thank you so much. And then you feel like, so do I need to write a card back saying, uh, you're welcome, but thank you for even acknowledging it. You know, it's kind of like, well, in the Greek culture, that was a, a tit for tat kind of thing. And so he actually avoids saying thank you to the Philippians. He started it out, the letter saying, I give thanks to God. Yeah. 
because you can never put God in a place of owing you a thank you, right? But he doesn't say it here. What he does say is that he rejoices in the Lord rather than rejoicing in their gift. Now, he rejoiced in their gift as well, but he, the point of this is that he was not just thankful for the gift that the church had given, but that he always recognized that his entire life and well-being was wrapped up in the Lord Jesus. Do you think that way? Isn't that how we ought to be thinking as believers? I mean, it's, I'm not diminishing relationships with other people in any way or, you know, kind words and all of that. that. Those are good things. But we ought to be reminded by this that our joy, our sustenance, our provision, uh, our health, everything comes from the Lord. Yeah. Everything comes from him to us. As James put it in James chapter 1, verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. I mean, yes, Paul understood the gift had come through the hands of Epaphroditus, carrying it from the Philippian church, but he knew that the, the gift actually was directly taken out of the treasure chest of God. He, the gift was from the Lord. His focus was on the Lord's provision for him through, uh, through the church. And that's really the basis of his encouragement that we read in verse 19 when he says to them, uh, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Just as the gift from them was according to God's riches in glory in Christ Jesus, so God's provision for them would be through his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. It all comes from God. It all comes from him. A third thing in this first verse, showing that uh, you know a contented person rejoices in God's provision, is that Paul for Paul, ultimate rejoicing was in the Lord, and, and, but there was this more immediate you know, cause, which was the gift that had been brought to him by Epaphroditus. Even though he, he makes no mention of the gift itself, but re, rather, you notice what he refers to? The revived concern for him. There, and, and if you read this, and if you weren't careful, it would be Easy to think, is Paul admonishing them for not having been, remained concerned? You know, he says, I'm thankful to God, or I rejoice in the Lord for your revived concern. That's not what he's doing at all. He's, there's no hint of rebuke or admonishment for a lack of concern, uh, you know, until the gift showed up. In fact, he's going to go on and point out quite clearly that there was no church like the Philippian church who supported him regularly from the beginning of when he had brought them the gospel all along. They were the church that were faithful in their support. But this word revived is actually a beautiful word. Uh, it's a rare word. It's a vivid word. and It's only used here in the New Testament. How many times have you heard me say that over the last few weeks? Only time it's used in the New Testament. Paul is a lover of making up words that, that will 
fit what he's trying to communicate or taking words from, I suppose, we have English dictionaries like Webster's. He must have been a dictionary, Greek dictionary in his head, the way he pulls words out of secular writings. But that's what he does here. And this word that he uses here, translated revived, it was used of a bush or a tree putting out fresh uh, shoots or blossoms, flowers in the springtime after a time of dormancy. And I was thinking about uh, Diane. I know that Diane puts her rose bushes that are in pots. She puts them into the garage during the winter. Uh, some people do that with their hanging baskets. They'll take them to you know, a place that will keep them, keep them from dying from cold, but they go into dormancy. And then when springtime hits and you bring those out, they blossom afresh once again. And it's beautiful, right? And that's the word that he uses here. Uh, it's a beautiful picture of the Philippians' care for him, blossoming afresh, as, and he, it causes him to rejoice in the Lord because of it. So besides God's provision, what, what gave Paul joy it wasn't the gift itself, but it was the Philippians reviving or freshly blooming concern for him. And it spoke of the closeness of their relationship to him and him to them. It, it existed between him and this church. Now, I'm not sure that the church in, uh, in Corinth would have had the same thing going on if you read the letters between Paul and the, the church there or the Galatian churches where he had the he says, I, I, I can't even give you a word of encouragement at the beginning. I'm, I'm, so, I'm so amazed that you are deserting the gospel for another gospel, which is not really a gospel at all. And just, you know, laying into them and correcting their, their belief in what was false teaching. And not so with the Philippian church. I mean, they had their own issues to deal with. We, we've talked about those things. Personal relationships were, that were causing disunity in the church. False teachers that were infiltrating the church and so on. But uh, here he is just kind of saying, wow, what a relationship I enjoy with you. And, you know, there's a statement that Paul makes of another brother, Epaphras, he says, he was a, re, a refreshing agent to me. A refreshing agent. And that's kind of what he's presenting here, too, at the Philippian church. It brought refreshment, re, uh, this blooming concern that they had for him that had shown up in this gift. But it's not just the gift. He knew that they were concerned for him regardless of whether they got him a gift or not. And it's kind of like, the modern idiom, right? It's not the gift itself, it's the thought that counts. And sometimes we blow it off because, you know, we might say, well, no, the gift really does matter. But the truth is, it is the thought that really matters, right? Because the, the thought is coming out of the heart. And the gift may represent it well, or it may not re re represent it well. But Paul is saying of them, they had this revived concern for him. And, and to make sure that they didn't think that he was reproaching them for a lack of receiving a gift before, he says, you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. You have revived concern, but that doesn't mean you weren't concerned. You just didn't have an opportunity 
to show your concern. And, and we can say this is the period of dormancy, if you will. But it, the time came where this concern could blossom once again, and it, it uh, showed itself in the form of the gift that Epaphroditus had brought to meet his uh, ministry needs. They had no opportunity. Why? Why? You know, we live in a, a day and age where money passes really quickly, right? I mean, online. You can transfer money from one bank to another online. You go, you go buy something online and the funds are transferred immediately. Only when money comes back to you does it not tend to get into your account immediately. You know, you know how that is. It'll take like five days for it to get into. It didn't take five days for your money to get into their account. Anyway, anyway, uh, you know, that's the world that we live in, but that's not the world that Paul lived in. And, and while it's not stated specifically why they had no opportunity, I can think of two different reasons. One is because of the, the state of poverty in which the Macedonians, the Philippians, lived. So in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Paul is talking about the gift of the churches in Macedonia, which would have included Philippi and Sancria and Thessalonica, a couple of other places. Uh, and, and he says of them, they were extremely poor people. Listen to 2 Corinthians 8, 1 and 2. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and extreme poverty have overflowed in the wealth of generosity to the poor. Wow, that is a sentence filled with extreme words. Right? Let me read it again. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given to the churches of Macedonia. So that included the Philippian church. For in a severe test, not just a test, but a severe test of affliction. Philipsis is where it means a lot of pressure coming down, really pressing in hard, this word affliction. Their abundance of joy, not just their joy, but their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty, not just poor, but extremely poor, have overflowed, not just it came out of them, but it overflowed like a cup overflowing in the wealth of their generosity on their part. Wow. That's gifts coming from poor people. And in fact, the word that Paul uses there for poverty uh, in, in 8.2 carries the idea of a beggar who has to live off the assistance of other people. You know, the guy that was at the temple gate begging for alms when Peter and John walked by and said, alms, alms for the poor. That was their state. They were so poor, and yet they're overflowing in the wealth of their generosity towards not only Paul, but the saints in Judea who were suffering under a severe famine. Wow, quite a group of Christians, wouldn't you say? Yeah. So this makes their repeated gifts to Paul 
and, and to the Judean saints, all the more impressive when you consider their state. I mean, it's, it's one thing for us to give out of our abundance, but their abundance was poverty. I mean, it's kind of like what Jesus said about the woman who put in everything. You know, the few pennies that she put in the treasury, you know, she gave everything while the rich person put in just a small portion of his wealth. These people were, you know, giving in great, with great generosity out of their poverty. And so it makes their gifts all the more impressive. It must have really... Uh, encouraged the Apostle Paul. The second reason they may have had no opportunity is because of Paul. And you think about it. Paul was in prison in Caesarea Philippi for two years. Or not Philippi, but Caesarea on the coast there. And uh, kept there, you know, and the, the, the Jews were trying to get him, him to be put to death. And Felix and and uh, King Herod were there. And after two years, anyway, he, he says, I, I want to go before Caesar. Only Caesar has a right to rule in my case. And so he was put on a ship, and, and they went on a voyage. But they went on the voyage in, in dead winter, and they ran into severe weather. And uh, they, they were shipwrecked, and they were on an island for a period of three months before they could get on another ship to continue the journey to Rome. And then he got to Rome, and we know that his Roman imprisonment was up to two years. So how could they get the money to him? I mean, you know, a bird's not going to fly over the ship out in the ocean and drop a, a gift down. Sometimes, it, you know, money that would be brought to someone who is in prison, it may not get to them. Right? It might be going into the pockets of other people, like the soldiers watching them, so on. So they had no opportunity in the sense of they just weren't able to get a gift to them. But he's basically saying, but that didn't mean your concern wasn't there for me all along. So two concluding thoughts on this verse. One is this. The central focus on God being the source of meeting a believer's needs, it really does transform something, and that is the interaction of giving and receiving. Now, in the context of giving and receiving, Paul's talking about as, as a preacher of the gospel, as an apostle, he was carrying the gospel to people. That was him giving from the Lord to people, and then he would receive back support from them. That's the giving that he's receiving. But let's just think about it in the sense of interaction that we have with people. Giving and receiving takes place a lot, especially this time of year. There's a lot of giving and a lot of receiving going on. But seeing God at the center of all of that really transform, transforms giving and receiving from a merely human connection, a merely human interaction a horizontal exchange, you know, to a divine human interaction, kind of triangular, if you will, instead of just one line going to another, you know, one point to another point, it's triangular. God's involved in that. And that, that changes everything. Because participating in the activity of God by giving and receiving leads in Paul's life, and should in our life, to rejoicing greatly in the Lord, because a content person rejoices over God's 
faithful provision. Now, the second thing that I'd, I'd throw in with that is that the importance, I see in here the importance of affirming those whom God uses in our lives. Let me say it again. The importance of affirming those that God uses in our lives. I, I think it's impressive how Paul affirms his friends in the, this verse and in this whole section. In a sense, again, the, the whole letter is a way to say thank you without putting them in an obligated form of, you know, now I've got to respond to that. But it is his way of saying, I'm really thankful for what you've done for me. And it's particularly significant that he affirms them even though they had not been able to send him a gift. They had no opportunity. And now their, you know, their concern has, was revived for him. But he, he, he's really saying, even when you couldn't send it, I knew your heart was for me. I knew you were concerned for me. Even though Epaphroditus had brought the gift when he, and he's writing in response to that sometime, he's really referring to before they could send the gift. And he's affirming them that he knows that their intentions were there even though the opportunity was lacked. He acknowledges their continued care for him in thought when it couldn't be given in substance, right? So, as I thought about that for myself, and for us. You know, it's, it's true. We appreciate people for what they do for us, right? Pastor Greg was even talking about it in the Garden of the Remembrance. We, we're, we're grateful to God for all that he is. We're singing about that. We, he is worthy of our praise because he is worthy, Amen. right? Amen. But we are also thankful for what he has done for us. Amen. And it's appropriate to affirm people for what they do for us. It acknowledges their kind act on our behalf. And I think that does affirm people. Say, I want to really thank you for the gift. Uh, that was totally unexpected. I appreciate that so much. It helps them to know that they're important to us, right? When we affirm them that way. Yes? Yeah, it does. I know that some people, they do acts of kindness for people. It could be a card that they send or a gift that they send, and they never hear anything back. And it can't help but kind of creep into the heart. I wonder if they even care. I mean, there was no response. That's that you put someone in a point of obligation to respond. Otherwise, how are you going to know what's going on, right? But words of kindness... Thanking someone for what they do for us is significant. I think maybe more affirming is when we acknowledge who people are, not what they do, but who they are in character, in motivation, and in heart. That's what Paul's doing with the Philippians. He knows that their heart was for him. They were concerned for him all along. That's what we should be doing with people. We should be people who recognize and affirm people for their unseen qualities that communicate that they are people to us of importance, of dignity, uh, of great worth. You know, it's kind of summed up this way. I appreciate what you do, but more than that, I appreciate you. I appreciate you. As a pastor here at ABF, 
I want to tell you, I appreciate you. I appreciate you for who you are. Yeah, I'd like the things that people do for me too. I mean, I've, I, I've had wonderful expressions of what people have done for me uh, since being hurt. You know, people say, can I do that for you? Can I do that for you? Wonderful wife who's like, you know, nurse extraordinaire. Do you need me to carry the plate for you? Can I help you put your socks on? Can, you know, all this kind of stuff. I mean, I appreciate it. But I appreciate her. Not just because of what she does for me, because of who she is. And that's the way we should be with one another. Okay. I got 10 minutes to get a second one in. How about that? Awesome. Awesome. There's only four and we're getting two in today. So, number two, a contented person is satisfied with a little or a lot. A contented person is satisfied with a little or a lot. And that's really verses 11 and 12. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, or I've learned to be, learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Notice that Paul writes, not that I'm speaking of being in need. Now, he does not want the Philippians to misunderstand his words as, as though, you know, he was dependent upon their generosity to, to, to get by. I mean, he rejoiced in their generosity. He was thankful for it. He rejoiced in the Lord, how God used them to uh, supply for him. But he he did not mean to imply that he spoke from absolute need. And the word that he, that he uses here is not referring to desire, but to actual and real need, to the condition of being lacking what is essential or necessary. So Paul's point is not that this, his situation wasn't difficult. It was. He was in prison, right? And, and it wasn't that, you know... He, he didn't have uh, extreme circumstances that he was going through. It was extremely difficult. But he still rejoiced in the Lord because God always provided for him what he needed, what was essential or necessary. It goes back to point one. Contented people rejoice in God's faithful provision. So Paul's denial here that he's not speaking to them out of the need of absolute essentials, you know, uh, through their gift giving, is based upon a major lesson that he had learned in the school of Christian living. What was that lesson? I've learned to be content in whatever situation I'm in. I've learned to be content. So, you know, you think of this. I thought about it anyway. How is it that Paul could make such a statement? Was it because he had a large bank account? You know, he had, you know, little carry bags where he had stuffed, you know, previous gifts. And, you know, he had a, a pocket hidden in his gown or something like that. So he always had, you know, money that he could rely on when things got tough. Um, no, no. He didn't have this, you know, endless treasure chest, bottomless treasure chest. The point is, as he says here, he had learned to be content whether his circumstances were hard or, or, or nice. 
whether they were difficult or not. He had learned to be satisfied even when he only had a little. And I think it's significant that he puts it in the terms that this is something that he learned. He learned it. In fact, it's it's the verbal form of the word from which we get the word disciple. Mathetes, disciple, mathon is the word for for, uh, learning here. And what is a disciple? One who learns, right? One who learns and then follows. So the uh, word that he uses here, or the idea that he uses, uh, expresses here, is that contentment is not necessarily an attitude that we receive from God at the moment that we're born again. Now, let's face it. We all know that before we come to know Christ, we're not content. Right? We're not content. We, we, we want all that we can get. We want it all now. Too often, after we're born again, we still think that way. We live discontented life. I want that new tech. I want that new car. I need some new, new shoes. I, you know, I, I want a, a wife. I want a husband. I want children. I want, I want, I want. I need, I need, I need. Discontentment is kind of, you know, quite common. Contentment is something that has to be developed within a person. You think of children in particular. Aren't they the perfect example? They haven't had time to learn to be content with a little or a lot. So you watch them if you have kids or you're around grandkids this Christmas season and they're open to gifts, you know, and they open one, a moment of joy, and then where's the next one? Am I right? I remember as a young kid, I can't believe I thought this way, but I did. Young kid, there were four of us boys, and my parents were great at gift giving. And, uh, you know, our, my dad's mom and my, my step-grandpa would come over, and she was blind, and, and so we would take each gift and open it, and, and then we'd take it to grandma, and she would feel the gift. And we'd talk about the gift. It was kind of a beautiful experience. But I remember one time I opened a present, and it was socks. Which, by the way, happens to be one of the most commonly given gifts of all time at Christmas. Socks. And I opened the socks, and I looked at them, and I threw them in the air. It's like, on to the next one. I want the next one. Well, that's the way the kids are. And too many adults are the same way. I want, I want, I want, I want more, I want better. Hmm. The, the adjective content that he uses here... It's an interesting word in itself. I was kind of shocked as I was doing word studies on this long ago and was refreshed as I was looking at this passage again. It primarily referred to the idea of self-sufficiency in the Greek world. Self-sufficiency. And this was a central concept in, in ethical discussions from the time of Socrates on. And it was particularly sought out by the Stoic philosophers as, as the highest goal of life, to be self-sufficient. And the idea was, for the Stoic, was that a man should be self-sufficient unto himself for all things. By the power of his own will, he could resist the negative impact of his circumstances. He was self-sufficient. By the extreme exercise of his reason over emotion, a person could learn to be 
content. So for the Stoic, emotional detachment actually was necessary to reach a state of contentment. As I was thinking about that, here's the word that Paul uses, that in that Greek world meant self-sufficiency apart from anyone else. I don't need anyone, and I certainly don't need God, you know, in that world. I don't need God, I don't need anyone else. Do you know some people that kind of live that way? Or they try to live that way? Maybe because they've had too many painful experiences when they realize that they depend on other people. They get disappointed, and so they just kind of isolate themselves emotionally, try to be self-sufficient. Well, that was the, the world of, uh, of the, the Greek person. Well, like the wise Stoic, Paul doesn't con- consider physical uh, deprivation as an unmitigated disaster. I mean, and he doesn't, he doesn't consider physical comfort as, as a sign of success. Not that, whoa. And that's, that's got a lot of Christians messed up because they keep hearing this message called the prosperity gospel, which tells you if God really, lo- God really loves you, he wants you to have everything. He wants you to be good in health, and he wants you to be wealthy, and he wants you to actually be able to say to your wallet, be filled, and it will be filled. Crazy. Crazy. Yeah. So Paul didn't think you know, having a lot or having a little was a big deal. For him, that isn't where he found his satisfaction. So unlike the Stoic, Paul didn't find the resources, you know, uh, material resources uh, as the answer to having a good attitude. You know, it wasn't his ability to reason and detach himself from his emotions. In fact, in the text, he's attaching it to his emotions. I rejoice in the Lord greatly, right? Even though my circumstances may be bad, even though I may be in want, maybe I'll have a lot, but that's not going to change my satisfaction because it is found in Christ alone. I'm satisfied whether I have a little or a lot. The Stoics, if you want to put it as I would, they had the contentment of pride. Paul had the contentment of faith. Of faith. The Stoics had to be detached from their emotions and from the necessity of relationships with others. Well, Paul describes contentment as connected to his emotions produced by the Holy Spirit uh, and tied to relationship with other believers in giving and receiving. So it's the mutual sharing of all things provided by a good and faithful God to meet all of his needs. Well, that's just got a whole lot to it, doesn't it? The Holy Spirit comes in and fills us with the fruit of love and joy, joy, right? Rejoicing. And it doesn't drive us away from people. It draws us to people. It draws us to people and sharing life with one another, knowing all along that it is God who is providing for us. So an important fact to remember when discussing contentment is that we don't blur the lines, and this happens often, between needs and wants. 
So when one understands that God will meet all their needs because he cares deeply for them, they are able to be satisfied with very little because they trust that what, it's exactly what God has for them at that time. People that are focusing more on wants, they'll never think that way. In fact, you know, if we, just, if we blur the, the line uh, of distinction between needs and wants, uh, as many people do, even in, modern, in the modern Christian culture, then discontentment begins to creep in because we end up feeling like, well, God's not really fulfilling his promise to take care of me because there are things that I want or we put it in the terms of things that I need. And the truth is we need very little for life to be sustained. And what God has promised is is that he'll give us all that we need for life and godliness. All that we need for life. What is essential for life and godliness. Pastor Greg, next time he preaches out of the Sermon on the Mount, will be covering that very element about the uh, need and want and about you can't serve God and money. And don't worry because God will take care of you, right? That's the passage that he will be in, right? Pass that test, good. And another important issue that must be addressed in this context is that while believers should learn to be content with only a little, it should never lead us to a life of laziness. Because, you know, a wrong view about this can lead to that, and it can lead to poverty, and then it leads to expectations that other people should take care of us because that's what we need. And that's kind of the world that we're living in too, isn't it? So we should be responsible, diligent people who work with our hands or with our minds, make a living, and trust that whatever God gives us out of that living is exactly what we need at the moment because God is faithfully providing for us and in that we should rejoice. And we should rejoice whether we have a little or a lot. We should be satisfied with it. I think the prayer of Proverbs 37 through 9 expresses this well. Two things I ask of you. Thank you, Joel. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not before I die. Remove from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. That's the right attitude. God, give me what I, what I need, right? Not what I want. Not what I want. Don't give me too much because then I might think, I've, look what I've done. Look what, look what I've done. That's the, the, the danger of having too much, right? We end up thinking we've got it under control. We supply for ourselves. It was our smarts that got us where we are. I picked those stocks. You know, I put so much money into savings. I I got that job. We begin to deny that God is the one doing it. Or else we'd be poor and and we still profane the name of God, basically saying, God, you either don't know or you don't care. 
So a final thought, and we'll end with this. Simple question, are you content? Are you content? You know, Paul was a wonderful model of the person who had learned to be content. Regardless of his situation, he remained content, satisfied. It didn't matter whether he was free or bound to a Roman soldier and imprisoned. It didn't matter whether he was, you know, walking on a, on a street on a beautiful, warm, sunny day, or he was being battered in a ship out on the sea near death every moment. It didn't matter whether he received a gift or he didn't receive a gift. He was satisfied in what God had providentially provided for him. So the question remains, are you content? You know, as to the matter of contentment, here's the question for you. Are you more like a thermometer or a thermostat? Hopefully you know the difference between those, right? A thermometer or a thermostat. This is my idea. I read it in Charles Swindoll. He suggests that some people are like thermometers who merely register what is going on around them. And others are like thermostats who kind of control the atmosphere around them. So, you know, the, the, the person who's like a thermometer, if the situation is tight and pressurized, they register tension and irritability. If it's stormy, they register worry or fear. If it's calm and quiet and comfortable, they register relaxation and peacefulness. They're just registering their circumstances around them. They are people who are not like those who are thermostats who regulate the atmosphere. Those people are those who are not controlled by what's going on around them, but rather are like those who tend to keep the temperature steady and stable. That's contentment, by the way, if you didn't figure that out yet. Steady and stable, not only for themselves, but for others around them, their families, their friends, their church family, the people that they work with. How about you? Are you content? Are you a thermometer or a thermostat? Lord, we are thankful for your word, thankful for the Apostle Paul, how you used him to deal with issues that are so practical for us. And certainly this is one, this idea of how contented people live and how different they are from those who are discontent. In order we recognize that before we came to know you, that was... That was our life. We were discontent because we were always searching, looking for something different, something that would satisfy a, a pang, a, an emotional need, or what have you. But when we came to know Christ, we, we received all that we need for eternal life and for physical life. We received all that we need for living godly in this world, living like Christ and ultimately, Lord, he is the one that we look to, even in this area of contentment. I don't think any of us would 
look at his life and ministry and see someone that was constantly clawing to attain the new and the better, but rather was always satisfied with your will and doing exactly what you called him to do. And because he was, he fulfilled, he fulfilled your will in coming here to be the sacrifice for our sins. That we might receive the gift of eternal life, we might have all that we could long for and have great hope. So we are thankful, thankful for these practical words. Help us to live as contented people and thus mirror the life of the Lord Jesus. Thank you too for the food we're going to eat. I ask that we'll bring you glory as we do, as we do so. In your name we pray. Amen. <clears throat>